This morning's reading is Daniel chapter 7, and that can be found on page 893 of the Blue Church Bibles. That's Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the, all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, 
which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the, ble- the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Amen. Thanks, Lewis. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Andrew, and we're going to look at this glorious chapter together now. So um, if it's helpful for you, do um, find it again in your Bibles, and we're going to pray and ask for the Lord Jesus to help us as we do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said to those looking for eternal life that these are the scriptures that testify about me. Help us, we pray, to hear your voice and to come to you for life today, for we pray this in your name. Amen. Sometimes rulers seem invincible. They have great power. They think they can do what they like and oppress who they like and threaten who they like. They think that no one can stop them. And then it all comes crashing down. No, this isn't the politics live show or news night. This is Christchurch Banstead where we are all about Jesus. Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's quite a scary thing to hear somebody say, all authority has been given to me. Unless, unless that person is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in all of his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. To live under the reign of a king like that is going to be liberating, it's going to be life-giving. The Bible from start to finish reveals to us the story of God's kingdom, how God rules the world he has made, how, yes, other powers come and go and they set themselves up against God again and again, but eventually they are reduced to nothing. 
It tells us of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the King who humbles himself to death on a cross. Jesus, who sets individuals free from their own rebellion against God and offers forgiveness, reconciliation, a place in God's kingdom for all eternity. The Bible speaks to us of Jesus, the King who is exalted, the one who's been given the job of judging the whole world, Jesus whose return is certain, but whose return is graciously delayed so that people everywhere might turn to him in faith, cross over from death to life, escape the judgment to come and know peace with God, even in the midst of a chaotic world. The book of Daniel is part of this grand story of God's kingdom. So far, we've seen in chapters 1 to 6 that those chapters have been addressed largely to the kings of the nation, so to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar, Darius, and God, through his faithful servants like Daniel, he's been revealing himself to the nations and to their rulers. He's been showing them how he is the God who rescues and saves, how he's sovereign over all kingdoms. And he's been calling these nations to to come and bow before him and worship him. So to any of you here today who are undecided about Jesus, maybe you're wondering whether he's worth following as your king. Well, the message of the book of Daniel is that there is a God who is living, he is righteous, he is good, he alone rescues and saves. His kingdom is the one that will endure forever. Nobody else's will. And so when he says, come and and worship my son Jesus, who brings you salvation and gets you into that kingdom, that's how you're going to be saved for all eternity, then that's what you should do. Maybe you're thinking about taking that plunge today. Have you done that? What might be stopping you? And what might living as a follower of this Jesus look like for you in the midst of a turbulent, beastly world that continues to reject this God, the Jesus God? If you're a Christian with us today, what hope does this chapter give to you and to me? What help does it give us in our lives of following Jesus? Maybe you're seeking to follow Christ each day in the places God has put you, but things, if you're honest, are a real struggle. Every day is an uphill battle. Well, how do these words help? Now, here in Daniel chapter 7, there's a a shift in the book's perspective. So have a look with me at at verse 1, because here's where things change. So we read that this dream comes in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Uh, Now, we've already got past that time in the story of Daniel. So the chronology, the timeline of the book has been broken. We're out of sequence. So this shows us that we're beginning a a new section of the book. And notice too how the dream doesn't come to a ruler of Babylon, but this time the dream comes to Daniel. So all this points us to the fact that this next section of the book of Daniel is addressing people who are like Daniel. God's people, living in a hostile world, full of powerful rulers who will oppose their God. And this message is for them, it's for you, it's for me, it's for the church. At first look, it's a hard message, a a disturbing message. But as we look closely at what we're being told, it's a glorious message. 
one that really sustains the people of God on their journey. It's a message of peace. It's a message of patience and of purpose. The first part of this message brings peace to God's people amidst the chaos. It's the message that the Ancient of Days is on the throne. The Ancient of Days is on the throne. Just let me say a few words about the structure of this chapter. So Daniel has a dream, that's verses 1 to 14. Then he asks for an interpretation. He, he gets one, a sort of initial big picture interpretation in verse 17 and 18. But Daniel wants to know more details, so he asks for more details. And then from verse 19 to the end, Daniel gets that more detailed interpretation of the same dream. And what we're going to do is focus on the big characters in the dream itself in verses 1 to 14, uh, and we'll occasionally dip into the rest for more details. So first up, Daniel's confronted, and we're confronted with this pretty horrific scene in verse 2 of the, the sea being churned up and the four great beasts emerging from it. And the descriptions of these beasts then follow. You can read them in verses 4 to 8. I won't read them again. They're pretty hard images for us to, to picture. Um, here's one artist's impression of them. Thanks, Paul. We can uh, look at these weird and wonderful creatures. Uh, and, but the reason that they're hard to picture and they look so strange when we try and picture them is that they are heavily symbolic, these cre creatures. They, each of these beasts represents something. Uh, so if we just scan forward to, to verse 17... We're told that the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So they're representative of, uh, of something, some powers, some kings that will rise. And I think we're actually probably more used to this kind of imagery than we realize. So even today, beasts or animals are often used to represent nations or, or powers. Uh, the England women's football team are currently competing in the Euros with the, the three lions on their shirts representing their nation. Uh, for many decades, cartoonists have used animals like the eagle or the lion or the tiger or other figures like Britannia to represent powerful empires or nations. So those of us that were at the prayer meeting on Thursday were shown this next image uh, of the bear targeting the, the pram. And being aware of the news at the moment, we can understand what that picture is telling us and who it's representing. So these beasts in Daniel 7 are symbolic. And it's not the first time we've encountered this kind of symbolism in the kingdoms or in the book. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar had two big dreams, didn't he, in chapters 2 and 4? One about a statue, one about a tree. Uh, and the statue one in particular, we're told that those sections of the statue represented four earthly kingdoms. And it's as if the, the vision of the beasts here in chapter 7, now for God's people as the audience, is giving them more details about these kingdoms. Uh, so just to run through what most of the, the evidence points uh, to these kingdoms being understood as Babylon, so when Nebuchadnezzar was ruler, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, and then followed by the Roman Empire. Now, some may want to argue the details over which exactly these kingdoms refer to, uh, and the rest of the chapter gives us more detailed characteristics. Uh, we'll come back to the fourth one shortly, because we're told it's a bit different, and it is a bit different. But the important thing is not so much 
who exactly these beasts are, but what they represent. They represent the powers that constantly emerge from this rebellious world, some more beastly than others, and they emerge and they set themselves up against God and they wreak havoc on the earth, particularly for the people of God. So verse 7 and and verse 19 tell us that this kingdom is a bit different. It was more terrifying for Daniel than the others when he saw it. It was given eyes like a a man in verse 8 and a voice to speak, which it does, boastfully. And it seems that these kingdoms or powers, especially the fourth one, are those earthly powers that set themselves up against the Most High God and against his holy people. I think we can see these things right throughout history. So right back from Bible times and in history since. So think right back towards the start of the Bible. Think of a character like Pharaoh in Egypt, oppressing God's people, the Israelites, who heard the message Moses brought from God, saying, you've got to let my people go. And his response was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I will not let you, his people, go free. And so while we can at first glance look at these beasts and look at history and say, oh yeah, that was Babylon, that was Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, we can do that, but the nature of these pictures, these symbols, this apocalyptic language, these images, it means that we can't just merely reduce these beasts to just single historical empires. So for example... um, John the Apostle is given a similar vision. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 13. But this time that the beasts merge together. So the one with ten horns, like our, our fourth one here, in John's vision also resembled a leopard. It had feet of the bear, mouth of a lion. Uh, and so are you seeing how this type of literature works? In, in visions like these, like Daniel has, it's as if time and space are, are collapsed and the usual markers we have in in historical writing about sequence and and dates and orders aren't aren't present in the same way in this type of literature. And so as such, as the generations and as the centuries come and go, these beasts can well be identified with various human kingdoms that oppose God. But such powers, whether they admit it or not, are not operating in isolation. Behind them stand Satan's spiritual forces of evil, and his lies give them a certain amount of power. So, for example, this fourth beast or kingdom, the different one, we might be able to make strong connections to the Roman Empire, particularly around the time of Jesus. But even since then, we can see other similar powers emerging, setting themselves up against God, oppressing his people. The 20th century alone saw more recorded martyrs of followers of Jesus than all other centuries combined. And so the point is not to think that, right, this kingdom is going to be okay, that kingdom then is going to be really bad for God's people, but um, maybe I'll try and second guess some sort of roadmap through it all. That's not really the point we're meant to take away. Now, remember Daniel in exile with God's people in Babylon. What does this vision say to them? Well, 
It says you were expecting, maybe from what you read in the prophets, that you'll, you'll be in exile for 70 years, then the bad guys will go, you'll return to the land, everything will be hunky-dory. This message is saying, well, you know, God's in control, but his plans are going to take longer than that. They're going to be opposed by more than just Nebuchadnezzar or Medo-Persia. There's going to be a succession of ungodly kingdoms that are keep on rising up and try and make your life hell. And for those of us who follow Jesus today, as we live in a world that opposes him, we too can expect, it in the big picture scheme of things, unrelenting opposition to Christ and his church. But, but that's not the focus of this chapter. In fact, it's as if just as things are getting really scary in Daniel's vision, so there at the end of verse 8, um, just as this little horn is launching into all its boastful speaking, its arrogant posturing is dramatically interrupted by a different scene. It's as if Daniel's being told, yeah, him, the noisy one down there, don't worry too much about him. Look at this, look at this. Here's the key focus of the chapter. Here's the key focus for the oppressed people of God, and it's that the Ancient of Days is on the throne. We got there eventually. So verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. The Ancient of Days is not just another way of saying that someone's getting on a bit in years. Rather, it's, it's speaking of the God who has been around forever. So long before these other little piddly kingdoms started their rise and fall games. And notice how different he is to the rulers of this world. So verse 9, he, he takes his seat. He is sane and very orderly. He is in control. He's not caught out by anything, in contrast to human leaders who are always acting and reacting and playing politics and posturing. The Ancient of Days is on the throne. He, his white clothes and hair stand for his complete purity. The fire represents his presence and judgment that's not restricted by, by time or location. And then in verse 10, we read of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands serving him, standing before him. He is majestic. He is the supreme God. He is the ancient of days. And in Daniel's day and in our day, God's people are strengthened and reassured, even in the midst of seemingly never-ending opposition, by lifting our eyes to the ancient of days on his throne. As we do that, we can be at peace. As noisy and as scary as the opposition is, such worldly powers are nothing compared to our God. He is in control. So we can take comfort. We too can be at peace. And just the way that the drama of chapter 7 is structured is just a massive signpost saying, please don't focus on the beasts. Yes, they're horrible, and they will do horrible things. But focus here. Behold our God, seated on the throne. He is the ancient of days. And so, Christian, when you are disturbed by the opposition to Christ, 
and his people on a global scale or on a national scale or on a personal level in your life with those around you, at those times, Daniel 7 encourages us to lift our eyes, to picture the ancient of days. Why not memorize Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10? That would be a great thing to do. What's going to sustain the people of God on their journey as exiles through this world filled with beastly kingdoms of men? Well, it won't be the news that we have a new or a better prime minister or a new president of whatever nation or a new high court judge. The first thing that will sustain the church of God will be a vision of the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. And so look to him and you will find a peace that is none like you've ever known, even in the midst of this turbulent world. Secondly, and more succinctly, you'll be pleased to hear, um, the second truth that will sustain God's people is in the next paragraph, and it's this. It's that the beast is destroyed. The beast is destroyed. So we pick up the vision in verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So what's going on in this divine throne room with the Ancient of Days? What's happening? What's the action there? Well, the action is judgment, fire. This is what Daniel sees next, judgment being pronounced on the four beasts. So one is slain, destroyed, burned in fire. The others have their dominion taken away. It's, a, it's as if they're they're disarmed for a bit, although they still seem to keep going for a bit as well. Uh, there's a more detailed bit later in the chapter that connects with this, verses 25 to 27, uh, which talks, again, from a slightly different sort of perspective about this limited time of these beasts that are under God's judgment. It describes this, this limited period of time as a time, times, and and half a time, uh, which is, again, another Bible symbol for, um, how would I explain it? Well, it's a bit like this sermon. You think it's going to go on forever, and then suddenly it's cut short, uh, and, and it stops. You're expecting a kind of perfect number, and it's not. It gets very dramatically reduced very quickly, uh, and um, that's the point for these kingdoms. Um, the big picture seems to be certain that the final and full destruction of this beast and his followers will happen after a limited time during which they continue thrashing around and raging against God and his people. Like when you're out walking in, in large hills or in the mountains and, and you look ahead and you see that one peak that's the highest hill and you think, let's aim for that one and climb up that one. And, and you do and you get there. And then when you get there you realize that there are at least two more hills further on that are, that are higher than the one you've reached that you couldn't see before because the distance was collapsed. In a similar way goes the judgment of the beast. So in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the spiritual powers and authorities in opposition to God, they were disarmed. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But yet, though he stands condemned, 
though in effect his judgment is so sure that as we look into heaven, it's already taken place. Still the devil and his armies rage against the people of God. And this is a tension that we, we know we experience as followers of Jesus. We know Jesus has defeated the devil, but there's still a battle going on. The serpent who has had his head crushed is still snapping away at our heels. Well, how do we keep going in this battle? By keeping this vision again of Daniel's heavenly vision in, in our hearts, in our minds. As, as the battle rages, we know that one day the beast will finally be destroyed. The cross has disarmed him. God's fire will one day destroy him. As verse 10 says, the court will sit in judgment. And so today, we God's people can, as well as being at peace, we can be patient, knowing for certain that this day is coming. It calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. If you're a Christian today, uh, where are you being called to be patient with these things? Where is that spiritual battle raging for you at the moment? Where is it hard to follow Jesus? Where is temptation striking? Where is opposition for following Jesus hitting you? On those moments, in those moments, sorry, on on that battlefield. Do not fear the accuser who rages against you. Be patient and fight on. Keep looking to Jesus. Know that he has triumphed over the devil on that cross so that you can be free from accusation, free from guilt, free from judgment. Know that the devil's destruction is certain and press on with patience. As our next hymn puts it, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's very much the picture we see in, in these verses. We've got the glory of the Ancient of Days in verses 9 and 10. We've got the, the glory of the Son of Man in verses 13 to 14. And in the middle of these two, there's no room for any other glory. This beast is just reduced to nothing, judged in an instant. Which brings us on to the third main character in this vision, the third truth that sustains God's people, which is that the Son of Man brings salvation. The Son of Man brings salvation. Again, we've got another wonderful contrast being painted for us in these verses. Remember back in verse 3, we saw where these beasts came from. They came from up out of the sea, from, from down below, from, from creation. But here's the Son of Man not coming from down there, not coming from creation like them. No, he is divine. He comes, verse 13, on the clouds of heaven. And it seems like he's a royal figure. All peoples will worship him. And he is the one who brings salvation. We're told about his dominion in verse 14. It's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What a wonderful kingdom that will be of peace, of freedom, of security, of salvation. That's the kingdom you need to belong to. Thankfully for us, the identity of the Son of Man is easy to work out. In the New Testament, Jesus chooses time and time again to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And so what he does on those occasions is he's saying, remember that character from chapter 7? 
in Daniel, that's me. And so all this reaches a high point just as, as Jesus is being prepared to die on the cross. So uh, Mark's gospel records for us Jesus' trial. The high priest asks Jesus the question that all the gospel accounts have been building up to, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus breaks his silence and he says dramatically, I am. And then he adds, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells his accusers what's about to happen. They don't like it. They give him the death sentence. The son of man who will be given all authority is killed on a cross. But as he said weeks before that day, this was all part of God's plan. The son of man, Jesus said, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So back in Daniel chapter 7, when we read this chapter in the life of Jesus, there is great comfort, great encouragement for followers of Jesus. Yes, we will have to endure a great deal of suffering that seems unrelenting. But the one who has been given all authority, all glory, all sovereign power is the one who has suffered for us that we might be welcomed into his kingdom and be secure forever. Jesus conquers through dying and rising again. And at his ascension then into heaven, he's installed as, as king of an everlasting kingdom. I think that the ascension and that, that part of uh, the gospel account is, is the best place to, to locate Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, and what's going on here. It seems to be referring to Jesus' ascension. So notice verse 13, the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven towards the Ancient of Days. So his travel is, is heavenwards, it's upwards. And so when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he entered the heavens, he stood before the Father, received his kingdom. We read elsewhere that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, and he's been given the name above every name so that all nations should worship him. And just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus' last words to his followers sounded a lot like Daniel chapter 7. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This means that we as followers of Jesus, yes, we can be at, at peace with all these things going on. Yes, we can know patience as we await the destruction and judgment of God's enemies, but it also gives us great purpose. We can be purposeful in these things, even in the days when Jesus is opposed. See, we have a purpose given to us by the Son of Man, who through dying and, and rising again and ascending has all authority. And so in Daniel 7 verse 14, we're shown what our first response should be to Jesus, the Son of Man. Every peoples of every language worshipped him. See, he is worthy of our worship and service with all of our life. He deserves to be number one in our, in our hearts, in our decision-making, in our priorities, in the way we use what God has given us to glorify him. Have you come to that point yet of realizing that Jesus died and rose again for you? 
that he has all authority, that you need to come to him in faith and worship him and, and bow before him and enter his everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. If you're still considering that or weighing it up, I'd love to uh, talk to you about your reasons for and against, and, and we could have a good chat about that. If you are someone who follows Jesus, this vision of the Son of Man gives you and us purpose. Uh, his words in that great commission give us our mission here as Christchurch. We are engaged in this task of making disciples of all nations. So we can be purposeful in that. We can get on with the job. And as Daniel's experience shows us, he starts off troubled by one vision, he ends up deeply troubled by the full explanation. Our experience might not mean that we get rid of all our fears about these things. We might still struggle with uh, what these things mean and, and the trouble it causes for us. But as we've seen, our focus is not to be on the beasts. Our eyes should be drawn each day of the battle to the throne where the Ancient of Days sits, to the risen and ascended Son of Man who has all authority. So we too can be at peace and be patient in the face of great suffering, knowing that judgment has come and will come in its fullness. And we can be purposeful, making disciples of the one who has all authority, who died and rose again to bring us into his everlasting kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for this amazing vision. Lord, we, we know we don't understand it as we'd like to, but we thank you for what it points us to. Thank you that the court will sit, the power of the beast will be taken away and destroyed forever. Thank you that you have promised that the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over even to us, the holy people of the Most High, Thank you that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Lord, may these words give us strength for the time between this day and that day. In Jesus' name, amen.